You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everyone? Happy Wednesday. I hope that everyone's week is, is going well and that uh, you've got some exciting plans to hopefully get outdoors this weekend. Uh, welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by the one and only Randy Newberg. Uh, Randy is the man behind 2% Certified On Your Own Adventures. Uh, you know, not only that, Randy uh, really for the last, gosh, almost 30 years, uh, has dedicated um, a good portion of his his life and his career to conservation, um, a bit more specifically uh, advocacy uh, for our public lands and our wild places. Uh, <clears throat> Randy and I get to have really a, just a great all around conversation and talk about you know growing up in Minnesota, uh, what public land meant to him and his family, and really the town in general, um, and the way. That hunting uh, was, you know, really a way of life for for him and for everyone that he knew growing up, and how, you know, after college, um, he wanted to to move somewhere where, you know, there was uh, a lot more opportunity um, in terms of public lands and the outdoors. So, 
moved west, head to Mon- headed to Montana, um, and kind of the rest is history, as they say. Uh, but no, Randy tells some really cool stories uh, about really his first experience um, with conservation, um, with with speaking up, with becoming an advocate for our public lands, and how really that just kind of snowballed uh, throughout the rest of his life. Um, you know, anyone uh, who has been following along uh, or is you know, involved in conservation in, in some way, shape, or form, um, you know, knows who Randy is. And whether Randy cares to admit it, uh, his voice carries a lot of weight uh, in this community. Um, I know he has certainly inspired a lot of um, people to, to help stand up and fight the good fight. And, you know, people like Randy, uh, the, the knowledge and the wisdom that they have acquired through throughout a career of being involved in conservation is something um, that should certainly uh, be celebrated. And hopefully, you know, throughout uh, the course of, you know, Randy's involvement in various organizations and sitting on the board of various organizations that uh, a lot of that knowledge and wisdom is being passed along uh, to the next generation of conservationists, uh, because we could all certainly stand to to learn something, uh, you know, from the work that Randy and, and a lot of his colleagues have done over the years. So episode 101, 101, Randy Newberg. Enjoy. Uh, but today's episode is going to be brought to you by our friends over at Stone Glacier. If you haven't already, be sure and download the Stone Glacier app, uh, whether on Google uh, or excuse me, whether on iTunes or Google Play. Um Stone Glacier just launched or just dropped a new pack last week. Um, looks like a great uh, day pack, uh, especially with spring bear uh, right on the horizon or turkey season for many of us is kind of in full swing. Uh, definitely go check them out at stoneglacier.com or, you know, get ahead of things, right? Start start preparing for next, uh, next hunting season, whether it's base layers, outer layers, uh, if you're going to be heading west. And you need a sleep system, uh, they can get you all dialed in. Either stop into their shop if you're in the area, give their customer service a call. Great customer service can answer any of your questions. Um, yeah, can't go wrong with anything that you're going to pick up from Stone Glacier. So, again, check them out, stoneglacier.com. Randy Newberg, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, taking some time to join me today. Marcus, thanks for having me. I'm, like I said before, I can't believe that you'd invite me, but. Uh, since I'm done with my morning coffee and got nothing else to do but stare out the window, I at least you're giving me something to do today. Yeah, appreciate there you, you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know this has got to be um, kind of the calm before the storm for you, right? I know you come off of uh, kind of like show season, trade shows, and everything in the first uh, you know first couple months of the year, and and now it's got to be a lot of planning uh, for upcoming hunting yeah. season and and how you're gonna you know, kind of produce and gather all your content where you're going to be and all that. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that post coffee, I could get you down for, sit you down for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the funny part is about what we do is probably half of our content is non hunting in the field content. So the rest of the year we're producing all of our content related to, we have four other, uh, silos of content that we call them uh advocacy conservation education information and so that's what we spend this time of the year doing and everyone's like how can you be this busy this time of year it's like i got 80 videos i gotta produce between now and when i leave september 1st or i've got you know 25 podcasts i gotta produce between now and then and so 
it, that's the part that people probably don't really see. That's all right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people just assume that, uh, you know, you're just out in the back country chasing, chasing animals, uh, you know, all fall and, and all spring and all that. And while that certainly, uh, does take some time, yeah, you've got to, you got to be able to fill the gaps in other places as well. Yeah. And that's, you know, for me and being on your podcast is probably a, a fun place to, to talk about this sort of stuff is my life has always been about conservation and volunteerism. So this time of year, I'm MC at this, volunteering for that, helping with this, helping for that. And it's, it's become so much fun in this, from the standpoint of now with our platforms, I've realized that I can raise more awareness. I can accomplish more by leveraging our platforms than I ever could have just by myself. And so it's fun to have these platforms that you can employ towards that cause. Yeah. So kind of, you just mentioned there, um, you know, conservation and volunteerism have been, you know, a big part of your life, you know, forever. And I'm sure you've probably talked about this on maybe some, some of your podcasts or podcasts, you know, that you've been guests on, but you know, how were you introduced to the outdoors? What did that look like for you? Well, if you grow up in Big Falls, Minnesota, like I did, uh, you're in the outdoors. It's, you know, 500 people when I grew up. Now it's 220 people. And it just, it, it, you didn't make a conscious decision of, hey, someday I'm going to hunt or fish. That is what you did. I grew up on the banks of the Big Fork River right up on the hill above. And uh, I, I didn't know anything different. Everybody in our town was uh, someone who hunted fish trap foraged or all the above and if you grew up there you came to understand at a very young age where your food was coming from and a lot of it was coming from the landscape and i <laughs> when i went off to college in minneapolis i had to be like the biggest bumpkin that ever <laughs> fell off the turnip truck man <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just I, I hadn't been exposed to the big city life uh, I had lived a pretty protected life of just you know grab my fishing rod and go, let's go catch something to eat or get off the school bus walk down to our trailer house grab my 20 gauge and shoot grouse and I you know when that's all you know you don't know anything different right and uh, so growing up there everybody I knew who was a mentor in the community or a person in the community that I looked up to was a hunter. And they also were big into volunteering. Everybody in town volunteered for something. I don't care if it was the Lions Club, the, you know, the, the Legion Club, the whatever, volunteer to teach hunter ed, uh, you know, volunteer flag football coaches uh, the list goes on and on and so volunteering i just thought well you know what's it everybody does right. and so i, I never I, I can't say that i had a chance to be cast in a different mold because that you know that that just is how it was where i grew up and i never really thought about it in a different context yeah it's uh you know, a lot of these small kind of Midwest communities, uh, I mean, I grew up, you know, here in Michigan, we talked about it a little bit before we recorded, but, it, you know, maybe a town that's a little bit bigger than, than Great Falls, uh, like you. Big were, Falls. Big Falls, excuse me. Don't, don't, those guys get mad if you call it anything other than Big Falls. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the town I grew up in was, was 
you know, the same way. Uh, everyone hunted or fished or trapped, uh, anything like that. And yeah, to to be able to take, you know, let's say during deer season, multiple deer, if you could get a buck and a doe or you, you drew an extra doe tag and, you know, things have changed a lot since I was a kid as far as uh, bag limits and, and things like that. But yeah, I mean, that would that would feed the family, you know, through the winter, you know, until until next fall. And that big city life. Right. I mean, when I went off to college, kind of the same thing. And I was kind of I was very excited about that because I, you know, I got to kind of my teenage years um, and I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to kind of see what else there was to experience. And, you know, it was pretty eye opening going to, you know, living in a, a much more urban environment and, and going to school. But then once I got out of college and I kind of got into the workforce, um, you know, I, I lived in a, a really big city. I lived in Chicago for a short period of time. And it was at that time where it was very apparent that that lifestyle was not for me. Right. I thought all the glitz and glam of the city and, and all this was was going to be cool. And I mean, it took like six months and the allure just completely wore off. You know, if I was going to hunt, I was coming back to Michigan. If I wanted to go skiing, I was coming back to Michigan. Anything I wanted to do recreationally, I was, you know, driving six hours back to Michigan for. And mm-hmm. that was kind of my aha moment where it was like, okay, you just, you need to be back kind of, you know, where you grew <laughs> up. Got to get back to your roots. Uh, yeah. I, you know, it, you think about when you're in high school, you know, it's right now, I guess, it's kind of the graduation season. Uh, I remember my senior year in high school, uh, a lot of us sitting around talking about what we're going to do when we, you know, grow up, quote unquote. <laughs> I don't know that I ever grew up, but uh, Northern Minnesota was like, well, I'm going to move here. I'm going to move there. And then mostly it was going to be, you know, big time employment jobs and careers and i remember saying yeah i'm moving to montana (laughs) like you guys looked at me like man you've lost your marbles and i'd never (laughs) been to montana but i'd read about it and read about it and it took me a couple years after college to get here but now i've been here for 31 years and uh there's a lot of that same lifestyle that that is here uh, where i live in bozeman and uh thankful that i i still get to to live this world or this life that's connected to the landscape in the way that i do yeah so you know growing up in my or excuse me in minnesota at what point did you realize the importance of of public lands and wild places because you know i think especially um you know as as small as our, our the the hunting and the outdoor community really is um you know You've been, uh, you know, a real advocate for public lands and wild places and access. So, at what point mm-hmm. did you realize? Did you realize the importance of those? Uh, well, the life events of when it became important was probably 15 years prior to when I realized how important public lands were in my life. So. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 10. I was the oldest of three. Uh, my dad moved elsewhere for a couple of years off and on trying to find employment. So here I am, you know, it's 1974, 75, something like that. And my dream that I'm going to become a hunter has just kind of vaporized because it's like, okay, the person most likely to get me into that, my dad and now you know, all, all the turmoil that goes on with that. 
and uh, lucked out had a, a sixth grade teacher, Paul Reese, uh, who was the hunter ed instructor, uh, made sure I got to go to hunter ed. My dad did come back uh, for some of the hunting seasons. Um, but as far as the day by day thing, I would walk home from school and we lived in an old junked out trailer house and I could go and grab my shotgun and walk, by walking maybe a half mile, I was on public land. I had, at the time I had no idea there weren't any trespassing signs. It never dawned on me. And uh, so that's what I did every day. And that's where I ran my trap line. That's, uh, you know, that's where I fished. It, and uh, if I came home with a couple grouse, partridges, they call them back there, uh, my mom is like, get those things cleaned up, man. <laughs> we got dinner. We're eating good tonight. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I I was so blessed to have all that public land right there. And it, it, I took it for granted. And then I moved away and then I moved to Montana where there's a lot of no trespassing signs. You know, our state is two thirds private. Uh, and it dawned on me at that point. Holy cow. You, you were so spoiled, Randy. And then you end up having a kid. My son was, you know, when we moved here, he was a year old. Uh, and your life takes a bit of a different perspective when you start having kids. And, uh, I, I moved to Montana, not for, I mean, my wife and I took ridiculous pay cuts to move here and we moved here for the outdoor thing. And I realized at, and now the, the picture was big enough for me to understand that if it would have cost a dollar a day for me to hunt growing up for access, I would have went to my mom and said, mom, I know you're a waitress in this little diner and you're trying to support three kids, but I need a dollar to go hunting today. It would have broke her heart, but she would have had to tell me no. She didn't have a dollar for me to go hunting that day. And so because of those public lands, I'm able to sit here and have a conversation with you today, Marcus, or, or the platforms that I have or all the things that the stories of my life, the connections to the, to the natural world, the, the place where as a young kid, when the world seemed really upside down, the place I could go where everything made sense was out in the wild places and it was all public. So you get older and you're like, all right, that was that that was a really key element to me being able to live this amazing life i have what can i do how, how am i going to make sure that i'm i'm not just taking it for granted or or resting on the the work of others and just started <laughs> this was in 1993 uh, there was a big land exchange being, well, there was a bunch of land. We had a bunch of checkerboard here in the, the Gallatin and Madison ranges in, in, uh, Montana, uh, Plum Creek, Plum Creek Timber Company, which was a spinoff of, uh, the railroad company got, they'd got their land from free for free from the government as part of the railroad grants. Well, they let us hunt and do everything, hike across their private land and forever. Well, they sold to a group called Big Sky Lumber Company, and they said, hey, after this season, we're going to close all these trails. Well, 
if you can imagine a huge, two huge mountain ranges all checkerboarded, and they're going to close this, that's what I moved here for. Right. <laughs> so we're reading about this in the newspaper, and this is my wife. She's she's such an amazing person, and she's like, look, you're the public speaker. You're going to go down to the Holiday Inn tomorrow when they're having that big meeting, and you're going to tell them what I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, and so we talk about, well, uh, you know, all this stuff. And she just, she said it so succinctly that it still resonates with me. She said, I didn't move to Montana and take these big pay cuts just so we aren't going to have public land that we can access because th this would have closed so many trails. So I go down there, all their big hearing going on and all the hunters are sitting in the back and the non-hunting public land users are getting up having their big parade of what's this and what's that and the, our senator senator max Bacchus at the time uh he's there with his staff seeking input on a, a possibly a land exchange and i stand up and i don't even remember what i said marcus <laughs> but i went on this i there's a retired fish, wildlife, and parks biologist, uh, Kurt Alt, who tells the stories. Like, Randy got up and threatened to fire a U.S. senator. I'm like, Kurt, I did not. <laughs> He's like, you have no idea what you said. Well, you just anyway. blacked out. Yeah. Uh, so the senator comes up to me, and he introduces me to one of his staffers, Alicia. And he said, whatever these hunters want, that's what we're going to do. And so I kind of became that conduit just by so my engagement at this was you know the old saying sometimes uh the battles won by just showing up uh i just showed up i showed up and i let my fears or my worries at the door and i just got up and said what was important to me and my family and after that i became the appointed loudmouth in the hunting <laughs> community uh and you know, started small local rod and gun clubs, volunteered for every one of the conservation groups. And for my wife, she shares the same passion. My son grew up in that. He, you know, he, he was working at fundraising banquets when he was six, seven years old. I mean, who's not going to buy a raffle ticket from a seven year old? Right? right. Exactly. So, uh, it's just part of what, what, how I evolved. And I, I trace it back to the first comment that in, the town I grew up in, everybody volunteered for multiple things. And I just thought, well, that's what you do. You know, yeah. if you're going to wait for the paid people to come and do it, it's probably not getting done. <laughs> that's the truth. So. <laughs> that's the truth. So that's, that's a long story of, of how it, how I came to the realization. Yeah. Well, I love that really almost like the, the buildup to uh, when you went into the, you know, the, the town hall style meeting where your wife gave you the pep talk, got you all fired up and said, all right, you, Randy, you're going to go do this and, and this is why you're going to do it. And you're going to tell them exactly what we think. Right. And then you get there and you know you wait your turn and then all of a sudden the lights kind of go out and you just you just take off. Right. And like, a, I mean, like a rocket ship kind of because, you know, who would have thought that, you know, kind of stepping outside of your comfort zone a little bit and standing up for, you know, what you and your family believe in you know, almost 30 years ago would lead you to the position that you're in now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I used to say it was, it, and that's what I did as I got up and, and, and said that, but 
Uh, this is where it really impressed upon me is the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation had a guy named Ron Marcou, who was their lands director at the time. He was leading, trying to organize all these cats, right? And the old saying, herding cats. Yeah. On the hunting side, Ron was trying to do all this, and he did a remarkable job. And the end result, over three land exchanges, uh, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, along with the Trust for Public Lands, ends up with... 80,000 acres of public lands consolidated in the Gallatin and Madison range. I mean, these took, these truly took acts of Congress and it wasn't quick and it took the work of so many people and so many groups. But for me, it impressed upon me how if you put your shoulder to the wheel and you don't give up and you don't listen to the naysayers and the complainers, work can get done. And I, I, it's uh, to this day, it's, you know, a lot of people will say, Randy, you're an awful big fan of the Elk Foundation. It's like, yeah, because I, I, I just saw it in action. And then they did a bunch more of them and a bunch more of them. And not just here in Montana, but all across the country. And, you know, then there's other groups. You know, I used to run the Ducks Unlimited Committee here in Bozeman for seven years. I've been a volunteer for, <laughs> I, I don't know, every group you can think of. And, and they're all doing amazing work. And one of the things you learn in that process is I don't have to agree with everything a group does or stands for, because if I only was going to be a member of a group that agreed with me a hundred percent of the time, it'd be a group of one. (laughs) All right. It'd be a group. And what can you get done there? And so uh, I, I get kind of turned off by people who want to find reasons not to support some of these groups or support some of the efforts or even if it's just an informal coalition being put together at the local level it's like you know if you're looking for perfection then you're gonna have to go and do it all yourself and uh so that was my first experience of seeing how groups well-led groups that are organized and have a vision can accomplish great things and that was so what's that that 1993 what's that 29 years ago yeah man yeah so you know and that's that's kind of uh, that whole story in a nutshell is what is kind of where i had based the the name of my company around the average conservationist right because at the time if you look at you know all the public land hunters that were getting up during that convention and speaking i mean they had jobs you know hunting wasn't a career it was uh, it was a passion of theirs. It was a, a pastime or a hobby, but they saw the importance. They saw the need for it, um, and they let their voices be heard. And it's just like you said, when you have a group, um, you know, with with strong leadership, with a clear mission and a clear goal, you know, all those members that are making up, you know, all of these uh, incredible conservation organizations are all just regular people, right? That yep. that love hunting, that love the outdoors, and when they put their you know boots to the ground, when they want their voices to be heard. Uh, you're absolutely right. The, the things that come out of that, the outcomes are incredible. Yeah. So I, I, I've been blessed, you know, that my life has turned out the way it has financially. I've, you know, in my real life, I'm a tax accountant, CPA. So uh, I officially walked away from that a couple of years ago. Um, so even while I had these platforms and while I was doing all of this volunteerism, I, I had a real job, you know, I had my own business. Uh, and I understand how difficult it is to find time 
to go do that stuff. And I, I only had one kid, right? They say if you only had one kid, you're really not a parent because, you know, who are they going to fight with? Or if you blame the kids, you blame the right one. And so I think about people with, you know, three or four kids and both spouses working and everything else. I'm like, how do these people find time to go and volunteer? How could they eat? How could it's not even in a lot of cases reasonable to expect them and what happens when you know i just was the mc at our rocky mountain elk foundation banquet here in bozeman here comes 25 volunteers who i know their daily lives i know how busy they are i know what their commitments are but you know what for four months every wednesday night they show up and give a couple hours of their time and I am so impressed with them. I and I tell them that I think they, maybe they think I'm just trying to schmooze them. But <laughs> that that volunteer person, and, and to the the point of your, name of your podcast, the average conservationist, they are not average people. They they feel they're like oh, I'm just an average person. No, you're a remarkable person. You, what you are doing and the difference you are making every one of those people maybe it's not someone working on a fundraiser maybe it's somebody who's coordinating a you know a trail cleanup or a fence pole or or maybe they teach hunter ed you know all that there are so many quote unquote average remarkable people who do that work that i I, i'm blown away by it there there is no place in the american society where so much gets done based on volunteers as you see in the hunting fishing and conservation world no place even close to it yeah no you're absolutely right and i think what 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 is remarkable about uh you know the people who are getting involved with that is they see you know a much bigger picture right they they realize that a lot of the work uh that will be done i mean there's obviously certain things like um you know trash cleanups and fence pulls where there's there's an immediate sense of, of accomplishment right you can see what you've done but you know if maybe you're doing goat surveys uh or something along those lines where you know that data is being compiled for you know a plan maybe five years down the road or 10 years down the road um and to for that many people to have you know the ability to to look at things on a much larger scale something much bigger than them uh, like you said it is truly remarkable yeah, it's. I, I'm just blown away by it. I, I, I really am when I say that, Marcus. And I, that's one of the greatest pleasures of what I get to do is I travel a lot and I go to these events. And I, I know a lot of people who do what I do are like, okay, I did my half hour presentation. I'm heading to the hotel room. I'm kind of like this guy who dives into the mosh pit, man. I, and my <laughs> wife used to go to a lot of them and she's like, you know what? I am such a, an attachment when you are in your element with all these strange people, because she's, she's pretty introverted, very modest. She's like, you just go there and do it. I can tell how much you enjoy interacting with these people who want to talk about hunting or fishing or talk about whatever it is that's important to them. And she's like, you just go do it. You're on your feet 10 hours just telling stories. I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right, honey. Uh, she still goes to a few of them, but my, my point of all, all of that observation is just how lucky I feel that I get to interact with so many amazing people and every one of them in in whatever way they're making a difference it might just be hey they took two kids out who 
maybe wouldn't have got a chance to hunt or fish. Uh, and that's, you know, that's part of being a conservationist. That, that, there's so many ways you can do something for the cause of what we love that whether it's a formal thing, like we said, the big groups, or maybe it's a local group you want to start. Maybe it's just you doing your own thing. Yeah. I, <laughs> there's there's no shortage of, of places to grab a hold and, and pull on the rope. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the things I always you know, kind of say is like, you know, conservation starts with you, you know, whatever you decide conservation wants to look like to you, go out and do it because that, that one little thing, I mean, you never know who's watching, um, who's observing to see, you know, the things that you're doing when, you know, especially if you're out on like a public trail or, you know, you're out for a hike and, you know, people stop and see you pick up trash, even though, you know, you're just along Mm -hmm. for a hike or something like that. And those things create, you know, kind of this, this groundswell, this ripple effect, even if you have no, you know, idea of what's, uh, of what's kind of transpiring behind you, um, you know, doing the right thing in, in the name of conservation is, is certainly um, a very positive and tangible thing as well. Yep. So uh, we're blessed to live in this amazing country and uh, the little part of it that is kind of my universe, if you want to call it that, is is the outdoor space and so i i just want to see it be there for those who come after me you know they're i've been blessed that a lot of people did a lot of hard work uh made a big difference so that i could enjoy all this and i want to make sure that it it sustains and is there for the next group of people because i'm they're about ready to put me out to pasture marcus so uh, yeah <laughs> I often tell my crew, I'm like, you know, if I was a horse, they'd shoot me today. (laughs) uh... (laughs) Well, we're going to cherish you for as long as we can, Randy. That's for sure. I appreciate that. So as, as you know, there's, there's, I guess kind of to piggyback off of what you were just kind of mentioning there with, it seems like there's kind of this new age of, of conservationists and hunters and anglers, kind of almost like a changing of the garden. I've said that on a few past episodes, but for someone who, you know, maybe enjoys the outdoors or, you know, maybe they've only hunted a, a very small bit in their past and they want to, you know, kind of immerse themselves in it, right? They want to really get involved and, and put some work in. What is your best piece of advice for someone kind of looking to get involved in the conservation world or to start volunteering? Yeah, for for me, I always tell people, make sure it's something that you are passionate about. You know, don't say, well, I'm going to do this just because I feel obligated or I feel, you know, a sense of guilt by not doing something. If you're into, you know, wetlands, go volunteer for some something that really is serious about wetlands. If you're into public access, go, you know, invest your time to the cause of of public access if you're into you know songbirds you know what go join the audubon society if you make sure it is something that is to the core of who you are and then decide okay am i the kind of person who likes to be part of a bigger group am i someone who wants to start my own thing my own little group am i you know just hey i do my own thing i'm out here i'm kind of the 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 you know the solo person it's just the, you know, they the, always say the first step in any, or the the path to, to any destination starts with the first step. Find reasons to take that first step or two and, uh, you know, ignore the, the naysayers who will maybe laugh at you or, you know, say, what are you doing that for? Uh, it's, I, 
I don't think there's a secret to it. It's follow your heart is yeah. probably the, the way that I, I would say it. And wherever that takes you, that's where you should be. Yeah, I think I feel like that's, you know, that's not just good advice for the world of conservation, but I feel like that's good. That's just good life <laughs> advice in general right there. Follow yeah. your heart because it's going to take yeah. you to where you need to be. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of being involved in the, in the conservation space for you know almost 30 years here, if you had to pick, you know, one experience that really stood out to you, would you be able to do that or what would that be? Oh, boy. Um that's that's a good question i've never no one's ever asked me that question before marcus and it's it would be a whole series of experiences probably um i i'd say a couple of them would be one when i started dating my wife she didn't come from the outdoor background i did uh and to see how taking her fishing connected her to clean water and public spaces the way it did it was immediate she instantly like hey you know if we don't have these public lakes and streams and boat ramps i'm not i don't get to fish and that that is an important part of her life yet today and she we we have a t-shirt we sell that's based on her statement and this is how she's a very utilitarian person when it comes to fishing if you hook them you cook them is what the t-shirt says uh but to this day, fishing is a huge part of, of her life. And so for me, as someone who just grew up in that and took it for granted and thought, well, this is how everybody looks at it, right. to br see a new person come to it and have such an immediate embracing acceptance to what re what is required to do it, I'm like, holy cow, this is, this is really important. Uh, Probably another event, and I don't know if if Jeff knows this, but there's a guy in my little hometown when my dad passed away in 2004, went back for his funeral, and then the next summer I go back home, and me and my brother are cleaning up his, his place, and a guy named Jeff comes up to me, and he says, hey, I just want you to know that if it wasn't for your dad, I wouldn't be a hunter, and we talked about it for a little while, and he he reminded me of what my dad used to do. And he, my dad, when he did move back to, to our little hometown there after a couple of years, uh, he made sure that every kid who graduated hunter education had someone to go hunting with and had a firearm. So the last week of October, he'd be driving around town, banging on every door. Hey, you got a spare 30, 30, or you got a this, or, and every kid ended up, uh, getting a chance to go. And Jeff was one of those people, his dad had passed away. And, uh, I, it, it you know, a death of your parent kind of is a, a pivot point in your life too. Sure. But I, I'd taken for granted, uh, I'd almost got pissed that my dad would spend so much time with these other kids in hunting season when it was some of the rare times he and I spent together it's like why is why do i got to share my dad with these other teenagers you know why can't it just be me and him and so at that time i looked at it through the wrong wrong lens and jeff comes up and talks to me and tells me that i'm like holy crap why 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 have i not seen that for what it really was all these years and uh 
then, you know, as I bump into some more of my friends back there, classmates and, you know, people I went to school with, they're like, yeah, I remember when your dad helped me build this deer stand. And, and so it, it was one of those eye opening times where, again, if you, if you're immersed in something, it's easy to just think that's how the world always was. Right. And that, you know, you're just on the treadmill doing what everyone else does. And then you get some of these comments that come as you, they either come at a time when you're, you're maybe listening a little better or you're observing a little better. And it's like, whoa, you know, that's pretty cool that my dad took these many kids hunting. And well, what have I done? You know, all of a sudden then you start reflecting like, well, am I doing enough for, for what it is? So I could go on and on and list a whole bunch of them. I would say, uh, having a child and, uh, just all the events that to, to see their eyes open day after day when we're out doing hunting and fishing and in the wild, just seeing how it was such, uh, I, what would I say that a learning experience for my son, Matthew, every day taking him out doing something is like i wonder what he's gonna discover today or i wonder how you know whatever happens today is gonna help his view of the world and so i'd, I'd say it's it's a whole list of things that would be there that you don't have enough time to hear them all probably i mean those are <clears throat> those are you know including uh the time spent with your son i mean those are three really pivotal points though um i mean mm -hmm. I, I lost my father about 12 years ago. Um, and I mean, he was, you know, the kind of that same relationship where, you know, everything I did, I did with him in terms of the outdoors. He taught me how to hunt, how to fish, how to shoot a gun and, you know, all those things. And, and yeah, that's, that's a really, um, pivotal time for, for reflection. Uh, because now, I mean, I can't think of a time where I'm, you know, fly fishing or I'm deer hunting, especially deer hunting where you're alone with your thoughts um, where I kind of reflect on those times, you know, growing up and, you know, there's always this, uh, bit of regret, right? Like I wish we would have, you know, gone out one more time, or I wish I wouldn't have belly ached, you know, when we had to get up to go waterfowl hunting, you know, at four in the morning or something like that. And just been able to, you know, enjoy the moment while you were in it. Um, you know, thinking that you're going to, you're always going to have these opportunities and, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, we don't get to, but it, it almost like, reignites the fire or or, or or that spark just just keeps going because it's you know that's when we're young and when we're in our youth i mean we're almost um you know oblivious to to how happy we are right it's not until we get much older and our brains are you know fully developed and we can kind of look back and be like oh man like that was that was great why don't i do that some more you know why why did i ever stop doing that or why did i not or why did i stop doing it as much and i feel like yeah. that's uh that's the case for a lot of people when, you know, they lose someone close to them. Um, that was a, a real mentor, especially in terms of like hunting and, and fishing. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's just the luck of who you encounter along the way. And, you know, if you involve yourself enough in conservation, you'll, you'll meet people who have an influence on you here in 1992. I think it was a guy named Jim Posowitz was hosting the, uh, North American Hunter Symposium right here at Montana State University. Uh, and I went and sat in the back 
uh, and here Jim and all these well-known thinkers about hunting and conservation come and talk about the future of hunting. Well, here's, you know, some, I don't know, I'm 25, 26, 27 years old. I walk up to him, almost afraid to introduce myself. And then I, <clears throat> I see him up at the legislature the next spring. I'm up there testifying on a bill. And so we struck a bit of a friendship and two years later, he asked me to be on his board of directors. He'd started a hunting group uh, called Orion the Hunters Institute. And so I served on that board for 13 years. And uh, some of your audience probably knows of Jim and in the books that he's written. And he's probably the, you know, he passed away almost two years ago now. But uh, in his time, he was as well respected of a conservation advocate as anybody. Uh, and for him to kind of take me under his wing the way he did, I, I just, <laughs> because I showed up at an event and I had the courage to introduce myself and he was, you know, to, to him, he was looking for more people who, who are, who's, who, you know, who, who's going to help push the wagon up the hill. And he found some young dumb finlander kid said ah this guy looks like but i so it's just the blessings of the relationships you make in the process also and i learned so much from jim i i can't even begin to tell you how much my adult conservation life was influenced by jim posowitz and and the blessing of of having that relationship with him uh it's it, it, hardly a day goes by where i don't think about some Jim, Jim's statement or some, you know, profound thing he said to me along the way. So that's, but again, that's just happenstance. You know, I happen to be engaging in those things. And even as young and green as I was, you know, he, he took the time and it made a difference to me. Yeah. And I think those, those relationships with, um, with kind of a different generation of, of, of people of conservationists are are vital to really the future of conservation to be able to to pass along that information um to to almost have this kind of marriage between wisdom and you know energy uh you know from from the younger uh the younger crowd and the younger generation and being able to to pass that along so that when the time comes for you know that new wave to really be at the forefront to really take the reins of things they they have that wisdom. They have that knowledge of you know the the people who came before them, and they can it can be a seamless transition, or they can you know actually see something come to fruition that you know uh, had been talked about you know ten or fifteen years prior that was in the works. And I think that yeah, being able to pass along that information uh, is crucial for for all organizations. Yeah, and and for the things we love. Yeah, and. Uh... You know, he he was one of those guys who never backed away from a, a challenge. And I I I think if if people look at uh, others they find it in their life, whatever part of their life that they admire, they're gonna find certain traits or certain behaviors that has made that person admirable that someone you look up to for for whatever reason whether it's business or a school teacher or a, you know a community member or a family member uh and they just they lead they they aren't afraid to to dare and dare greatly as roosevelt would have said uh and so that, you know find those people in your life you know 
it's it's great to have those kind of people and i was blessed to have people like jim and others who invested a lot of time in me because i was <laughs> i was a pretty uh pretty raw uh <laughs> recruit let's put it that way <laughs> well I, I would say they whipped you into shape for sure there randy <laughs> <laughs> so you know, one of the reasons, uh, I mean, obviously to, to have an, an opportunity to speak with you about, you know, your experience in the world of conservation uh, was definitely something that, that I've been wanting to do. Um, but On Your Own Adventure um, is a 2% certified brand. So, so tell me about that and, you know, really your involvement with 2%, you know, how you learned about it, how you were kind of integral in the early stages of it. Tell me about all that. Yeah. So uh, a guy named Jeff Pizzito. Uh, who is now at Stone Glacier, yeah. uh, was at Sitka gear at the time. And he called me and him and David Brinker, who were both Sitka employees at the time, they said, hey, we got an idea we want to talk to you about. So we go to breakfast here at the Western Cafe down on East Main in Bozeman. It's Jeff, David, uh, Brent Walker, another CPA in town. Yeah. And uh, Lyle Hebel, who works at Stone Glacier now, also Lyle worked at a, a <clears throat> PR firm, a, a, like a ad agency type firm at the time. And so they'd been talking among themselves and Jeff's like, hey, you've been involved in a lot of big nonprofit groups. We need some advice here. And Jeff explained this vision. I'm like, this is really cool. <laughs> this is really cool. He said, look, I'm... I'm on so many other boards right now. I can't be on this board, but I'm more than happy to, you know, chip in wherever I can. So Jeff and David and Lyle and Brent, they, they really carried the ball forward and uh, they spent a lot of their own personal time on this, a lot of their own personal money. And then uh, they lucked out. They had some founding groups, uh, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, Sitka Gear, and for some reason I feel like I'm missing a fourth founder. But anyhow, and I know those three founding groups were really impressed with what Jeff and David and, and Lyle and Brent had put together. And uh, so, yeah, I, I helped them fill out a lot of their nonprofit paperwork. You know, that's it. CPAs get to do. Sure. Uh, we're, we're good at the paper <laughs> stuff. So, but Brent helped with a lot of that and it, it just kind of took off. And then it was kind of started as a 1% for conservation. And then they said, you know what? Let's go even further. Let's do 1% of gross revenue and 1% of your time. So, with our business, <clears throat> you know, I just tell my employees, look, you get paid to do a week of conservation work on my dime. You you go and volunteer and you're gonna get paid just like it was, you know, a day of work or a bit of vacation or whatever. And so uh, that came from this idea that in the in the conservation and hunting space, time is sometimes worth more than the check we write. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so that's that's how I got involved in it. And then uh, you know, the current executive director, Jared Frazier, uh, when he first came to the Valley here, I'd bump into him as a volunteer at all these events. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? 
and uh, talk to him a little more and then see him at some other things and get to know him pretty well. And Jeff Spazito calls me. He's like, look, Randy, we, we can't run one or 2% as just a, a volunteer group anymore. We're, we're getting so busy and we got so much going on. We got to hire somebody. I'm like, you should, you should talk to this guy. And the guy I was referring to was Jared uh, and Jeff. And I'm not sure who all interviewed him, but they called me. They're like, yeah, I, I think we should hire him. So here we are. Jared Frazier is the executive director of, of 2% for Conservation, doing great work. The organization has become everything that that Jeff and, and David and Brent and Lyle wanted it to be when they expressed that vision to me and I, I i'm trying to think when that was i think that was like 2016 or 17 something like that yeah I, yeah i think this is going to be six years for yeah. for two percent this year i believe yeah yeah so <clears throat> i mean it it's made a big difference and you know without some groups and companies willing to take a shot you know take a, a chance on a you know what some thought was a crazy idea here we are now they're they're doing great things yeah and what i've loved about you know being able to talk to you know uh, a few of the gentlemen that you mentioned um that were involved in the early stages of planning um but then you know all the the businesses and individuals who who have some affiliation with two percent over the past couple years is how many businesses aren't related to the outdoors right Mm -hmm. and while you know their business i mean there's uh, the the kind of the most obscure company is a piano repair company right i guess <laughs> yeah. has nothing to do with the outdoors but you know it, it's it's something that he's passionate about it's something he enjoys so he sees the the importance of, of giving back to conservation and yeah. hearing everyone's story about you know why it's uh why conservation and giving back is an important part of their business uh important part of their life personally uh, it is super cool because everyone comes from a different background. Um, but there's always kind of that one little nugget, right. Of, of similarity from, from every person. And it's, it's really cool to see the, the diversity in, in businesses that, uh, have made the pledge to 2%. Yeah. And if I was still an owner of a CPA firm, we're not quite a piano repair company, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I got out of that just about the time two percent was starting uh but if i was still a partner and owner in that i would i didn't roll that business in there so well brent yeah brent i haven't had on the podcast but i know he's a cpa and he's on the board of directors so that's like the next yeah. closest link that we have there yeah, yeah. so give, give him a break though tax season just got over here a little bit ago uh, yeah yeah i was gonna say like uh, as a as a cpa um and i only know you know the busy season you know probably you know maybe early February, but March, April, like you're, you're going to be swamped, but you know, that that's August, September, October. I mean, what a way to really kind of burn some energy before you've got to uh, really buckle down come the first part of the year. Oh, for sure. My wife always says uh, at the time, because I, I had so much free time to fish and I hunt the rest of the year. She said, you wouldn't have become a CPA if tax season was in the fall during hunting season would you i'm like well no (laughs) for sure i wouldn't have Uh, you know Uh, there was some strategy behind that thought when when did it become you know i thought you knew that right back in the beginning i was a cpa when we started dating so uh yeah it's uh for me it 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 was a way to build a lifestyle my wife 
uh, when we were dating, she, you know, as it started getting more serious, she told me, she said, I hope you're good with this, but my goal in life is to be a stay at home mom. Like I'm, you know, if you want to be president or stay at home mom or, you know, a school teacher or a fireman, a firefighter, I, I don't care, you know, whatever. Uh, so I've been spoiled from that respect because she, views summer as that's when you fish you don't waste your time on golf or other frivolous activities you fish i like her and so she when she she had a a great career that she was in the middle of and then when matthew i think was four she she said all right um remember when i told you i was gonna be a stay-at-home mom that's what i want to do so but one of the contingencies was i had to plan my cpa life so she could fish 60 days of summer so, yeah, if you can imagine, I, I'm sure everyone's like, oh, Randy, we really feel sorry for you. Your yeah. wife forces you to fish <laughs> two days a year. So we, we haven't got anywhere near the 60 days a year lately, but there were times when Matthew was a kid that we would fish 60 days a year. And then I'd roll right into hunting. Season. Yeah. And so by the time tax season came around, you know, about uh, right after Thanksgiving, you get into year-end planning with all your clients. I probably needed a little office time and I, I needed to actually, you know, grow up and make some money again for four or five months so I could <laughs> go be a, a derelict the rest of the year. So you could so. fund your, your trips the next fall. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. that's really kind of brilliant yeah. uh, if you think about it. And the fact that your wife, your wife had said, you know, however we're going to do this, it's going to work out so that I can fish 60 days a year. I mean, who doesn't want a wife like that? Right? Who doesn't yeah. want who doesn't want a partner in crime that's going to say, "Look, summer is my time, fall is your time, and the rest of the time we'll just we'll make some money to to, to kind of fund our our habits." Yeah, she'd always say, "You better go to the office. We need some money for bait and bullets." Is what she'd say. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a Midwesterner thing to say, though, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> I and you know, uh, as we're talking about all this, Marcus, it just. It it causes me to think about what an amazing place the United States is that here's some snotty nosed punk growing up in Big Falls, Minnesota, like I was, who went through some, you know, difficult times when his parents got divorced and thought the whole world was falling apart and could have easily found trouble because it was around every corner. But through just a lot of good luck, uh, I end up having a life I could have never dreamed of. I get to, I've said, this is what I want to do with my life. And I, I live in a country where that, if you say that and you put your mind to it, you, you can probably do it. And I, it's just so remarkable to me that I, I'm this blessed. And, and with these blessings every day, I, I just look at them like, gosh, I, I, how did I end up in this situation? And it just, it causes me to want to share whatever I can uh, as a result of the blessings I've I've had. And uh, it, uh, people hear me say, what a country, you know, and I kind of say it a little bit tongue in cheek, but really I want people to think about it. You know, the in spite of all the bumps and warts and things that people want to complain about the United States, go travel around the world, go travel to other places and see if you could build this amazing life there where you'd have public land out your back door where the public is who owns the wild things 
or at least it's held in trust for them. This is not by accident. This, this is a blessing beyond anything I could have ever dreamt up in my mind. And here we are. So I, and whenever I tell these stories, I start thinking about how, how lucky I am. And my job is to get up every morning and see if I can make it even better. Yeah, well, <clears throat> based on conversations that I've had with, with previous guests, I mean, your name has come up numerous times with guests who, you know, learned about 2% or, you know, found some information regarding conservation, getting involved through, you know, you and, and your various, um, you know, content channels or podcasts or when you were a guest on a podcast, things like that. So, you know, the, the impact that you're having uh, is, is very tangible. I mean, I could, like I said, go through, you know, previous episodes and point to, you know, the different times where people mention you by name and it's, it's had a profound effect on them. So, you know, the, the work that you're doing, uh, in conservation, in advocacy, volunteerism, um, it's, it's incredible. And, we need more people like you, Randy, who, you know, aren't afraid to, to get involved, to express their opinions, to, to fight the good fight. And, you know, conservation, our, our public lands, everything will be in a lot better place if more people take the same approach that you have over the years. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Marcus. It's, I'm almost blushing here on this end <laughs> because it's, it's not like you get up every day and say, oh, gee, I, you know, I want this or I want to, you know, I want someone to to think of me this way or that way it's just the to-do list of things i'm concerned about is so long and if you saw the crew here they they see my to-do list and they're like this guy's gonna have to live to be older than moses to get that to-do list accomplished <laughs> but you know there's legislation there's policy issues there's landscape issues there's access issues there's all this stuff that's like hey what are we doing about this and you know the crew is i'm sure they think i've got some sort of you know lack of of attention to you know i i they probably think i'm the most impulsive person in the world but i i i'm glad to hear someone like you say that people have noticed some of that and if what we do and, and what our platforms are committed to provides just a little bit of, of uh, example. If, you know, whatever it is, it helps in a little way. I'm, I feel like it's a huge success. And that's, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I, I blush when, when people say that because it's like, if you knew where I grew up, let, let my wife or my brother or my sister or my friends back home tell you, oh, you should have known this guy when he was 13. Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, so to, to have someone say that is it's, it means a lot to me. It's, it's really what drives us uh, in what we do every day. Um, so it's, it's great to hear. We'll yeah. Keep doing it. So a few more questions here, Randy, before I let you get out of mm-hmm. here. Obviously, we've got uh, you know we're we're into we're into the spring we're into May here. What does your fall look like uh, in terms of hunts or, or what you can kind of talk about uh, without you know divulging too much oh. for future uh, content and things like that? But what is how jam packed is your fall looking? It, it's always packed. Um, you know, this year and right about now in the next month is when a lot of the tag applications or drawings take place so it kind of fills in our calendar there but some things that i have on the calendar is i am going back home to northern minnesota 
I've talked about it for years and just, I want to do a piece about hunting culture in the upper Midwest. Uh, in Northern Minnesota, everyone has a, a camp or a, a shack. I'm going out to the shack, yep. which is their deer camp. And it might only be 15 miles from town, but that's where they go and stay for a week. And that's a culture that I'm a product of. And I want to go and talk about it. And the odds are I won't even see a deer because deer numbers are down so low there. But I think there's some value in talking about these traditions and, and the cultural offspins of that. Uh, I've got that one. Um, I have an Idaho deer tag. Obviously, I get Montana uh, tags. Uh, next month, or first week of June, uh, I'm going to Alaska with my niece from northern Minnesota. Her graduation present was to take her to Alaska on a bear hunt. Uh, so that, yeah, my nieces and nephews, they get to go with uncle Randy for their graduation presents. Good old uncle Randy. Gotta love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I got some of that. Uh, there'll be some things that just, you know, pop up, have a few hunts. I'm hoping my son gets a tag, the, the real times that I cherish at this point and well, have always cherished are just when Matthew and I get a chance to hunt together. I, I don't need a tag. I don't, I just... Yeah, you know, it's just such special time together. So I, I'm hoping we have that. Uh, a friend of mine who we've had on the show before, he's a, a disabled vet. Uh, Idaho has a program where there's, a, I think, five moose tags go to disabled vets, and he got one of them. Okay. Uh, so we're going to go help him. Uh, just stuff like that. I, you, you never know, you know, the old uh forest gump life is like a box of chocolates well my hunting season is kind of like a box of chocolates i never know what tag i'm gonna get uh, and sometimes i don't get that many and i just go and tag along with other people and and become a nuisance for them so <laughs> i heard to say but I, I i can assure you that there's going to be some grouse hunting probably some elk hunting uh some deer hunting and who knows what so. awesome well randy thank you again uh, for, mm -hmm. for taking some time. Um, incredible story. I loved being able to, to kind of hear, um, you know, the, the story that brought you to where you're at, uh, you know, the, the pinnacles, the, the, the things throughout your career that have really made a lasting impression on you and have really kind of given you the fuel to, to continue the good fight. Um, it's been a pleasure yeah. and, and thank you so oh. much for joining me. Yeah, I appreciate it, Marcus. And I, you know, thanks for what you do. Thanks for what 2% for conservation is doing. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, uh, what, what would you leave us with if, if you had any last thoughts on, on conservation? And I always say there's, there's three main principles you need to accept when you want to advocate for wild places and wild things is one, it's always difficult. It's, it's not going to be easy. I joke and say if it was easy, they'd call it golf. Uh, and all the golfers get mad. But, you know, I, I, I gave the example of a land trade here in Montana. That was not easy. Every, every major accomplishment that we have that we look to as one of those big points was difficult. So it's not going to be easy. It's uncomfortable. Someone will be upset with whatever you're advocating for and usually your critics will take the time to tell you they're upset but you know what if that's your passion and that's your vision you got to do it it's always inconvenient imagine if 
you know, whatever conservation, you know, uh, uh, accomplishment you hold as a pinnacle event. Imagine if the folks behind that said, you know, I'm too busy today. You know, put that on my calendar. Yeah. We don't get to say when the opportunities will arise or will the th- when the threats will occur. So those those are three principles that I make it easy for me to do this. I accept the fact that it's going to be difficult. It's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be inconvenient. And then the other reality is it takes money. Conservation, as much volunteerism as we get, don't be bashful about supporting those groups that are doing it. Because it, <laughs> we can't, with the important work ahead of us, we can't do it on bake sales. Yeah. Yeah. That's Maybe. absolutely true. So, uh, we can all do it something in some way. Our time, our talent, or our treasure. And uh, everyone can make a big difference. So yeah. thanks for doing what you do. Appreciate it, Marcus. Yeah, absolutely. Well, take care of yourself, Randy. Good luck this fall, and uh, hopefully we can talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Well, a big thank you to Randy for the great conversation today. I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Stone Glacier and Go Hunt, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, Do me a favor. Be sure to go out and support the brands that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the great certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where you can stay up to date with, uh, you know, all the latest happenings in the conservation world, um, as well as enjoy the conservation uh, focus posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week again, everybody. Uh, Be sure to check out the Average Conservationist um, website and stay up to date with all past episodes of the podcast as well as pick up some merchandise to help support conservation in the process. So until next week, as always, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.